today's episode, I'll be sharing some excerpts of media coverage from the time that the show came out and also some fan memories of how they reacted first watching the show, either in 1990 or catching up with it later, uh, like I did. And this episode uh, ends with both the talking about the lead up to the pilot it, for many fans and then also the pilot itself and sharing my own small little stories within that there. So we'll end with my kind of first reaction to the pilot. There was a lot of great press leading up to that point. Connoisseur magazine wrote about it in 89, as did Tom Shales in the Washington Post. And I'll excerpt some of that in a moment. Uh, They would end up covering the series, or Tom Shales specifically, would end up covering the series a lot in the coming two years. There were TV critics who were just dying for this thing to air. They're so excited about it. And they're hyping it up, hyping it up for months ahead of time. So there's incredible anticipation. The New York Times Magazine published a spread a couple months earlier. And in the week right before the the, uh, pilot aired, Entertainment Weekly ran a cover story and several additional stories within that magazine all about this amazing new TV experience. Here's some of the media coverage from the time. I'm going to read uh, quite a few excerpts, more than usual, because so much was written about the pilot that when I did a media roundup a few years ago, uh, there was just a ton of material covering this aspect of Twin Peaks. So here's some of what uh, critics were saying in the months before the pilot and then uh, right as it was airing. The New Heights of Twin Peaks, ABC's Risky Drama Series by Tom Shales for the Washington Post, September 7th, 1989. Twin Peaks, the television show, is not on any network's fall schedule, but ABC has ordered seven episodes of this rather unprecedented serialized drama and will probably air the show's two-hour pilot sometime between now and January. In terms of provocative novelty, Twin Peaks easily outdazzles all the new network shows that will be premiering over the next few weeks. But is it the kind of thing America wants to watch? In its current issue, Connoisseur Magazine naively hails Twin Peaks as the series that will change TV, but the Artsy Monthly forgets that TV does not want to be changed. Brandon Tartikoff, president of NBC Entertainment, says, I probably would want to live in a country where something like that could work, but I suspect it will be a tough road for them. A Dark Lens on America by Richard B. Woodward, The New York Times Magazine, January 14, 1990. If there is an image that, for Frost, epitomizes Lynch's mind at work, it is the scene in the pilot in which the FBI agent checks the body of the dead girl lying in the morgue. He is probing with tweezers for a bit of evidence he thinks may be lodged under her fingernail, an image many viewers may find unsettling. David likes to get right under there, beneath the surface of things, and make people uncomfortable, Frost says. There is a magical line that you have to feel or you get into trouble, Lynch says, and sometimes you think that you feel it, but you don't. It's interesting to go up to that line. You should go up to the line, but you shouldn't cross over. The fingernail is near that line. Is TV Ready for David Lynch by Steve Weinstein, by Steve Weinstein, Los Angeles Times, February 18, 1990. Out of the early morning fog that lingers on the still waters by the lumber mill, the town's blonde teenage beauty queen, meticulously shrouded in a white plastic tarp, her cherubic face washed deathly white, her full lips drained of color, floats gently ashore, her youthful sexuality more alluring in death than in life. So begins Twin Peaks, ABC's bizarre and quirky new nighttime soap opera, the horrific murder of Laura Palmer unlocking a Pandora's box of secrets, mysteries, and illicit trysts that eventually touch the lives of nearly all the peculiar inhabitants of the small lumber town nestled in the lush green forests of the Pacific Northwest. 
Alfred Schneider, vice president of policy and standards at ABC, said that the network has concerns about how Lynch was going to shoot the dead girl's naked body when it washes ashore, but Lynch decided to wrap the body in plastic and show only her face. I watched Blue Velvet, and there are obviously things in there that you couldn't show on television, Schneider said. But we went over the ground rules with them at the beginning, and we've had no problem with anything that they've done. There's nothing in the show that we feel is gratuitous in terms of sex or violence, nothing that is inappropriate for a 10 p.m. show. When it is pointed out to Lynch that television shows almost always catch the bad guy at the end of each episode, that the audience likes its criminals behind bars before they go to bed, that it gives them a sense of closure, his soft-spoken patter erupts in disgust. Closure. I keep hearing that word. It's the theater of the absurd. Everybody knows that on television they'll see the end of the story in the last 15 minutes of the thing. It's like a drug. To me, that's the beauty of Twin Peaks. We throw in some curveballs. As soon as a show has a sense of closure, it gives you an excuse to forget you've seen the damn thing. And Lynch isn't about to give anyone any excuses to forget this. The Triumph of Twin Peaks. Jim Jerome, Entertainment Weekly, April 6, 1990. Lynch's renown lies in a gift for depicting life's more pitiably grotesque and banal creatures, the tormented, loaf-haired title character of 1977's Eraserhead, or the monstrously deformed Elephant Man, with a probing, affecting tenderness. Now, on ABC from 9 to 11 p.m. on April 8, comes Twin Peaks, created by Lynch and his partner, Mark Frost. Even if Twin Peaks is not a commercial success, the director deserves considerable credit for taking a chance. Look, he says, everything we do in this business is a risk. The more success you have, the more you second-guess all your future projects. You have to be ready to fail and try these things. It's kind of a diabolical thing, but you can't really think about it. And I didn't. I lucked out. Why TV Had to Make Peaks by Mark Harris, Entertainment Weekly, April 6, 1990. Ten years ago, the networks didn't need David Lynch. Not only did they not need him, they wouldn't have wanted him. Now, TV needs Lynch badly, and that has less to do with his popularity than with network TV's shrinking audience. The 1980s saw the end of network domination as pay cable, basic cable, VCRs, and independent stations led an assault on CBS, NBC, and ABC. Television, Twin Peaks by Ken Tucker, Entertainment Weekly, April 6, 1990. Will Twin Peaks be a hit? Not a chance in hell. Well, maybe in hell. Soaked corpses, sobbing deputies, and muttering G-men, it's all very unsettling, as is Lynch's refusal to signal the emotion he wants the viewer to feel in any given scene. A show like this also invites all the standard Philistine complaints. It's boring, it's pretentious, who wants to think when you're watching television, some of which I fully expect to hear from TV critics trying to break away from the pack. But Twin Peaks is different from most other shows that have striven to be innovative, for one thing, Peaks is good, engrossing and funny. For another, it doesn't carry those shows' stink of smugness. David Lynch isn't condescending to television. When Twi while Twin Peaks shares with his feature films an eerie airiness and sinister non sequiturs, it has its own video style. A+. One thing after another, Terrence Rafferty, New Yorker, April 9, 1990. This all-American surrealist takes to television like a parasite to an especially nourishing host. A smoother, less upsetting version of Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks does not put a naked, bruised woman on our living room. We recognize this body as the device that will set a plot in motion, the jarring element in a calmly beautiful Pacific Northwest landscape, the object that will, in classic soap opera fashion, reveal the passion seething beneath the surface of an apparently placid community, or something like that.
Lynch varies the tone, sometimes radically, but he never breaks the odd, hushed mood, which is as overpowering and immutable as the natural sky. Although terrible things happen, or seem about to, in Twin Peaks, it has the air of an enchanted place, a fairy tale woodland. As ominous as it is, we don't really want to run away from it. We want to remain enveloped in this dreadful forest, to learn how to see in the complex darkness. Besides, the show is tremendous fun. Works like Bunuel's and Lynch's derive their force, even their narrative force, from the swift movement of the artist's mind, a strong current of ideas and imaginative energy. Fog Warning at Twin Peaks by Tony Kornheiser, The Washington Post, April 11, 1990 Unfortunately, I never saw Blue Velvet, me and 250 million others. Twin Peaks was so strange and icy and meandering, I was surprised it wasn't in Swedish. That's it for the media coverage roundup for the pilot. Uh, We'll have more of these in the weeks to come. Never usually this many, except maybe between the seasons and eventually for uh, the film. But this was a pretty unique example in that, you know, all of this media attention was concentrated on this one episode. And finally, how was this episode received by fans? Well, of course, you know, this is the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks fans tend to love it. And uh, at the time, I'm going to be covering reactions through the alt.tv.twinpeaks message boards, but it wasn't actually in existence yet at this point. So I don't have any sort of source material to draw from. But uh, in general, uh, you know, this was what made Twin Peaks fans in the first place. But it was also shared by a much wider audience. And I've noticed over the years uh, that casual viewers tend to give the pilot real pride of place in Twin Peaks. Like this was the finest moment of Twin Peaks and everything, you know, nothing else could quite live up to it. Whereas fans are more ambivalent. They like the pilot, but sometimes it actually takes them a little while to get more into the series. Um, the pilot feels too much 1990 soap opera to them. Uh, and, and then later episodes appeal to more. I always tell people, give it three episodes before you decide if Twin Peaks is for you or not. Because uh, it's really the third episode of the series that's kind of decisive in defining all the aspects of Twin Peaks without saying too much. When I posed questions about a series of turning points on the Doug Pa Twin Peaks fan forum several years ago, I got some great responses. First, I asked the forum to set the scene for how they came to Twin Peaks. User Audrey Horn wrote, This is fun, and remember, candid, from how I felt at the time. Teenager who watched too much adult TV as a child. 1990. Ross responded, I was a Twin Peaks fan, fanatic, from day one, and 24 years later I'm still obsessed with it, so this should be fun. I watched a lot of TV as a kid, and I guess I still do, but nothing before or since has sparked my interest in the way that Twin Peaks did. Back then, Lynch, Frost, and others were pushing the show as TV for people who don't watch TV. I think the idea behind this was just that it was so different than anything else on TV. Of course, with all the acclaim certain shows get these days, I don't think they would sell it that way today. In fact, some TV is much more acclaimed than film now. I was a senior in high school that first season, so the same age as Laura and the other younger cast. And I think being that age and watching it for the first time added a lot to the experience. I'm sure my love for the show has lasted so long, in part because of when I first saw it. Anyway, before the pilot aired, I had heard some buzzing about the show that got me interested. Mostly that this was unlike anything ever seen on TV, and they started to promote the Who Killed Laura Palmer angle before it hit the air as well. I had no idea who Lynch was at the time. I had heard of Blue Velvet, but had never seen it. So the Lynch angle wasn't a draw for me then. 
but the strong buzz and the murder mystery angle got me to tune in. And Needleman responded, I mean, I think back then we let kids get away with a lot more, or maybe that was just my mom. She used to watch a lot of stuff like Helen Mirren and Prime Suspect with me as well. And also, for that moment in time, the show was really the biggest thing on TV and everyone watched it, so I think it trickled down to a lot of kids with their parents. They bought into one thing and ultimately got something even weirder, and I'm sure that was perceived as a bait and switch for a lot of people. But in my household, it was just more like what we'd already been watching. I was a little super fan. I had the Dale Cooper tapes, the soundtrack cassette, and then some sort of tie-in guidebook that I think TV Guide had done after season one. Not the town guide written later, which I've always wanted to read. Gabrielle responded, Circa 1990, when I was about 15, I read an article about this show called Twin Peaks in a Sunday supplement, probably the Mail or Sunday or the Sunday Telegraph. It was talking about TP as the new Dallas, which put me off right away, and comparing its characters to those in Peyton Place, upon which TP was said to have been based. I'd heard of Lynch being referred to negatively in reference to Dune, possibly on the BBC's hilariously trendy art series, The Late Show, so I knew he was a bit quirky. I'd also started to read Dune around then. My grandfather had retired recently and moved in with my grandmother across the country to live nearer my parents. I'd been helping them set up their new house and Twin Peaks happened to be on, so I was at their house and we just happened to watch it on its first Tuesday screening. Rocketson22 responded, I came to the party very late. It was a photo in the Toronto Sun proclaiming that the much-anticipated season 2 premiere was upon us. If it wasn't for Sherilyn Fenn's captivating eyes, I might have missed it all. I was a college football junkie, and I watched very little regular television, so I'd not heard of Twin Peaks at that point. It wasn't until the international pilot came out on video that I was able to see any version of the pilot. I had waited so long to see it, it was euphoric to finally experience it. I did make a trip to the U.S. where I saw single-episode videos. I purchased the episode 1 VHS, which I must have watched about 20 times to get my fill. Chow Font responded, I remember the show was advertised on TV in the days and maybe weeks before it started, and I was looking forward to it. I think I even had discussed with friends and family that we need to watch this, as if we had any choice, really. We only had one TV channel. It was aired here in Norway on Fridays or Saturdays. Rami Ariola responds, I was eight years old when it first aired in Finland. It was the spring of 1991. I was born in August 1982. I saw most of the episodes. And MB3 responds, around 1991, TP aired on German television. I was 11 years old during that time and barely watched any kind of TV shows. My main interest during that time was sports, soccer and basketball. My cousin, who's three years older than me, told me about a show with some quirky and strange characters called Twin Peaks, and that she watched it regularly. I remember that I caught a glimpse of some TP episodes by switching through the TV program, and my thoughts back then were, damn, this is another one of these soap operas. No wonder my cousin likes it so much. It's girls' stuff. I guess I was just too immature back then, and that was the main reason for my thinking. In 2008, I'm 28 now, and not still not a big fan of TV series, but I already own nearly all of David Lynch's films on DVD, except for Twin Peaks and Inland Empire. So since the Gold Box edition just came out some months ago, and also the Inland Empire DVD, I finally had to expand my collection. I also bought the movie Firewalk with me. I took some days off from work and watched all the episodes in Firewalk with me together with my brother, who also loves Lynch's work. Of course, we both loved it, or else I probably wouldn't be here sharing my thoughts on this forum. Black Moon Lilith responded, In terms of the show's big moments, I marathoned the entire series during spring of 2010, from pilot to Firewalk with me over a Monday to Friday period. One thing that does surprise me in retrospect is that I watched them while I was at work. I had to deal with customers, but a typical day had very few actual people coming in, so I would browse the internet on the work computer and bring my laptop and headphones to watch stuff at the same time. Five years later, I'm surprised, not just that I first saw such dark and harrowing things in that context, 
but that I had the balls to do that. Hooded Matt responded, I was around 10 or 11 when it aired in the UK, and it only vaguely appeared on my radar. Somehow I managed to go from then until last year without getting majorly spoiled, so it was all fresh and new for me. Now, after asking the question, um, I, you know, this is Joel again, (laughs) I responded uh, myself, and I wrote, I watched Twin Peaks in 2008 by renting DVDs from Netflix. Saw the whole thing in the space of about three to four weeks, so obviously my experience was rather different than someone watching it in 1990 to 91. But the experience actually began two years before I watched the full series, when I rented the old pre-Gold Box Artisan set from Netflix, which did not include the pilot episode. I can't for the life of me exactly remember what, why, or how I decided to watch Twin Peaks. I don't think I'd ever seen any clips. I was not a TV person at all, but it was doubtless through some film connection that I was drawn to Twin Peaks. The big connection, of course, was Lynch. I hadn't seen that many of his films at this point, just Elephant Man when I was a little kid. Mulholland Drive, which I'd watched several times and was one of my favorite films, and Blue Velvet, which disappointed me the first time I saw it. I'd watch Eraserhead within a year, but I don't think I'd seen it yet. Nonetheless, on the basis of Mulholland Drive, I knew Lynch was brilliant, and that something about his atmosphere and style just connected with me on a gut level, like a dream. I also liked the idea of the woodsy locale, and I was intrigued by the hook of the sad, wistful Laura Palmer mystery. When I was a kid, I had seen some TV movie, not Twin Peaks, although it would have been around the same time, in which a girl goes missing and is never seen again, and all her classmates feel a sense of loss, and it always haunted me. We're going to continue the Doug Pafan form questions. In this case, we're going to talk about uh, how they received the pilot episode. So when I posed this question, uh, the, the fans responded. Or one of them named Bob One said, The music, the river flowing lazily by, the face of the dead girl, and I was totally captivated. And then the image of Leo's truck as Shelly and Bobby see it all of a sudden. I could never later quite understand why this truck made such an impression on me the first time. Audrey Horn, the goes by that username, wrote, Cool, I want to watch this. I love Agatha Christie and whodunit. I'm not even going to be home, but hey, I'll record it on VHS and then watch it. Thank God I did. I saw Blue Velvet when I was 12. It was already a film criticism nerd. And I grew up with HBO playing The Elephant Man a lot. I thought Dune was boring and not Star Wars, so I knew who Lynch was. Never watched Hill Street Blues, but could hum its theme song. Anyway, watched the pilot by myself. Holy moly! Really into the wacky receptionist, Agent Cooper, James and Donna, and those bikers. Love the younger sister of Donna. Who did it? Where's that woman in the ads with Cooper where they're drinking coffee? Surely the parents won't be in this thing much past this episode. That would be too depressing. Hopes Falls wrote, This is so fascinating to read. Ah, you remind me of my older sister when she was watching the show, LOL. My first introduction to it was her trying to scare the crap out of her younger brother, me, by putting the pilot on and then subsequent episodes from her recorded VHS tape. I must have been 9 or 10 at the time. It really did scare me. It took me a short while to come around to watching the pilot of my own accord, but when I did, I watched it a lot. Although even then, I would always fast forward past certain bits that upset or frightened me, like Sarah's manic crying. That hit me hard. Renette walking across the bridge, her zombie-like walk and the appearance scared the shit out of me, and Sarah's vision of the gloved hand at the end. Alas, it's because of my sister that I became somewhat obsessed with the show. The user Audrey Horn's posts are so similar to her behavior at the time that it made me chuckle. She wanted to know everything, and any time there was anything to do with Twin Peaks in the media, she would go nuts. Hooded Matt responded, They had me from Lonesome Foghorn Blows. 
we sat down to watch it. My wife had been trying to get me interested for ages, but it took us having a free weekend with nothing new to watch for me to agree, and I was hooked. YG Drazel responds, James snapping his pencil in two made me roll my eyes. He couldn't pull off actually emoting a little, so he went for camp. The rest of the pilot was great, though. I do recall getting a bit exhausted because I wasn't aware that the pilot was movie length. Chalfont responds, I can't really remember my initial reaction to the pilot other than everyone really liked it. I remember my neighbors had taped it on VHS, so we watched it a few times. And Gabriel said, I found it fascinating and utterly unlike Dallas. It was downright spooky, yet very funny and very sad. My grandparents gave up at episode three, but my parents and I stuck with it. My grandparents had rented a TV and VHS machine, as people did back then, so they let me have their old Betamax machine. I used all their old tapes to record the show. There was just enough room to fit George C. Scott's A Christmas Carol on the end of one tape as well. My grandparents are gone now, so there's going to be a bittersweet feeling relinking with the show after so many years. So many family members gone, friends moved on, me having moved cities twice. Ross responded, I still vividly remember watching the pilot. My dad was watching something else on the main TV, so I ended up watching alone in our basement. My mom watched on a portable black-and-white TV in the kitchen. From the start of the opening credits, I was mesmerized. The visuals with Badalamente's music had me hooked. I kept thinking, what is this great music? To this day, I've never seen a more perfect pilot episode. Everything in it set up the show perfectly. Most TV series have okay pilots, and then they end up finding themselves and getting better. TP was unique in that everything clicked in that first two hours. I was instantly hooked. I remember my mom was really affected by the scene of Sarah on the phone. Again, so unlike anything seen on TV before. After that, I taped every episode, and those tapes got watched countless times over the years. I was thankfully able to tape the pilot episode when they repeated it in the summer. I got both of my brothers to start watching it after that. But as far as I remember, there wasn't much talk from the other kids at school about the show. In fact, that first year, the only other people I knew that were watching it were my two brothers and my mom. But I remember the media hype starting. There was an article in the USA Today newspaper about the show's popularity and the viewing parties that were going on. I was surprised and excited that it was getting so much acclaim and attention. I think people tend to think the ratings were huge the first season, but they weren't. The pilot's ratings were, but the remainder of the season did just so-so. Many thought it was too weird or off-putting, but the media hype and cool factor kept it in the mainstream. But there was a lot of talk that it may not get renewed for a second season. It was far from a sure bet. Okay, so those are the fans who responded, and here's how I responded to my own question about the pilot. I like this episode. It's definitely Lynch's most restrained, somewhat aloof episode in the series. Much more Blue Velvet than Mulholland Drive. Most of all, though, I really admired how Lynch and Frost's screenplay unfolded so meticulously and precisely. This may have been the beginning of my curiosity about what role Frost played in the series. One thing I distinctly remember from my first viewing of the pilot breaking out into a grin and sighing with relief when Cooper appeared in his car. Everything had been so grim and moody so far, which was alluring, but this felt engaging in a whole different way. And that's it for this episode. Tomorrow, we will continue with the uh, look at 1990, but expanding our scope to see what else was on TV the night that the pilot aired, what film was number one at the box office, and what were the big news stories of that day and that time, uh, even including a Time magazine cover uh, just a brief look at what was on the cover that week. Eventually, that section's going to expand and expand, you'll see, as this uh, podcast continues. 
and I look further and further into the context. But this is a shorter uh, version of that section tomorrow. So check out uh, the, the historical context of the pilot. 